Hello, and welcome to Russia in Context series of the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy's Contours podcast. This is your host, Jeff Hahn. Three decades ago, the Cold War ended and the red flag was lowered over the Kremlin. The USSR was dead and Russia was reborn. But history did not end as some thought it would. And over the last three decades, Russia has once again become a persistent challenger to U.S. global leadership. How this is happening and why is what we seek to answer in our new subseries on the Contours podcast, Russia in Context. I'm joined today by Ivan Kluzik, who is a research fellow at the International Center for Defense and Security in Tallinn, Estonia, and Harold Chambers, who is a PhD researcher of political science at Indiana University. Welcome, both of you. Thank you for having me. Yes, thanks for having us. All right, so I'm going to start off by actually quoting one of you. Harold, you once told me that you really can't understand modern Russian politics without understanding the Caucasus. And let's briefly unpack that. Russia's Caucasus region consists primarily of three regions. Uh, I'll, I'll let you name them because I'm sure I'll butcher the pronunciation. But why don't you tell us some about the role uh, the Caucasus region has played on modern Russian politics? Yeah, so sort of the, the crux of... The North Caucasus's role in Russian politics today is really in, you know, facilitating the rise of Putin. You know, in the mid to late 90s, you had Chechnya decide to assert their independence after the fall of the Soviet Union. And eventually, you know, Yeltsin decided, no, this can't be allowed. And so he launched the first Russo-Chechen War and lost the first Russo-Chechen War. And so this opened the way for Putin to, you know, attempt to succeed where he had failed. And so in 1999, Shamil Basayev and Omar Khattab, a Chechen militant and Saudi Arabian militant, respectively, uh, were operating in Dagestan, trying to provoke conflict there. This provided an opening for Putin to sort of, you know, position himself as this strong man, as this man of power and started to reopen the conflict that has formed the basis of his legitimacy for power. Yeah, and I add uh, a couple of words to that really excellent overview. I, I want to stress that the Caucasus region and the, what we call today the North Caucasus has been for Russia a key place for its claims to being a great power. Maybe not as much as say Ukraine or Poland in the past and, and Central Asia, but during the imperial era, it was the region where it would pursue a type of colonial empire that would put it next to the European empires of the time. And during the Soviet Union, Muslim minority regions, such as in Central Asia and the Caucasus, were part of the Soviet uh, proliferation or propaganda of the industrialization model of the Soviet Union. And essentially, the Soviet Union going around the world saying, look how we develop these regions. Imagine what that can do for you. So it, it holds a special place in Russia already from much uh, much time in the past. And of course, in that sense, it's no coincidence that Putin, in his first or second term in office, relatively early in, in his long reign, uh, said that historical mission is to bring order or stability to the Caucasus, to the North Caucasus. So I think, building on what uh, Harold mentioned, it is kind of Moscow's leadership is aware of the historical significance and the value of this region for Moscow. That's an interesting point. You, uh, thank you both for that wonderful summary. But one of the points that opposition activist Alexei Navalny made earlier in his political career was this criticism of 
stop feeding the caucuses, which many have interpreted to have very nationalistic or even racist connotations, but also speaks to the amount of resources that the Kremlin invest in the region. So Ivan, can you give us an idea of ballpark how much the Kremlin invest in this region, generally speaking, and why it sees it so strategically significant that it's worth that investment? So I don't have in front of me the figure of what proportion of the Russian federal budget goes to this part of the Russian Federation. Maybe Harold has. But it, there's no doubt that the part of the Russian Federation that is the North Caucasus, which consists of several autonomous republics, which are in essence federal subjects on paper, much like states in the US or Lenda in Germany and, and other federal governments, their finances are overwhelmingly dependent on direct transfers from the federal budget. Their capacity to collect taxes locally and their unemployment rates and their lack of true strategic industries means that they don't have much sources of income locally. Chechnya and Ingushetia, to a lesser extent, used to have a large uh, oil industry, but today that's mostly depleted. And even the larger uh, region, Dagestan, which is the largest in terms of population and, and surface, doesn't really have a, a large industrial base that would make it a true economic powerhouse. So this is a region that's highly dependent on, on Moscow just to carry out its basic uh, governance functions in terms of financing. And Harold, do you want to elaborate on uh, why they see this investment as so important then? Yeah, so the whole invest idea of the investment is not just that it is supposedly, you know, bringing about stability through economic development. It's that it's bringing about stability through funding a massive repressive apparatus and by buying off the elite. And obviously, there have also been some other more high-profile sort of in investments, such as all of the construction surrounding the 2014 games in Sochi. And you know, while technically the area where Sochi is was was moved out of the North Caucasus from a bureaucratic standpoint, where they separated Krasnodar Krai and the Republic of Adygea from the North Caucasus Federal District, moving it into the Southern Federal District. Geographically, it is still the North Caucasus. And so it's sort of been this hyper fixation, and you could almost say old school imperialist romanticization that you could find and take your choice of classical Russian writer. You know, this idea that the, Caucas that the North Caucasus is, you know, this place of wild, rugged beauty and for that, you can only invest in tourism. Unless if they have oil. Oil is obviously always full game. But that's sort of, you know, is how we've seen these patterns of investments. It's been in, since the very early thousands, the commitment really was this heavy focus on like ski resorts. And this was including in areas where you had ongoing insurgencies. And so it's this sort of the, uh, if you build it, they will come mentality. When realistically, that has been just proven utterly false. And now, you know, a lot of the region lacks basic infrastructure, like for, you know, gas, water, electricity and such. And so it's really been this sort of misallocation of funds to do sort of, you know, short, short term payoffs rather than any attempt to actually create long term stability. So no economic viability, but an important strategic position. Thus, Moscow continues to focus on the region. But let's 
try to also discuss this from a um, viewpoint of the people who live in that region and also the issues that they deal with. I know, of course, from just, I mean, it's impossible not to follow Russian politics and not see the names of several prominent people in uh, caucus politics crop up in discussion around national politics or issues relating to that. So there's a couple of ones that come to mind, but Harold, maybe you can give us just kind of a general summary of how, for example, Chechnya's political elite interact and interface with the Kremlin elite and how that has changed or shifted since the war in Ukraine. Because obviously, if you are on social media at all, uh, you will see the uh, Chechen forces supposedly in Ukraine at some point. They do seem to have time to make a lot of TikTok videos. Yeah, so the relationship between the Chechen officials and officials at the federal level has really substantially changed during the war or since the most recent full-scale invasion. And it's definitely softened relationships. Obviously, you know, historically, they've been extremely tense. Nobody trusts the Kadir regime. The Kadir regime is openly antagonistic, especially towards the federal security services. And even though Chechnya has not been the number one recipient of federal subsidies in some time, just in terms of, you know, in the North Caucasus, most of them have actually been going to Dagestan. Chechnya is always still that focus because it's just such an open secret how much is getting embezzled. So it's, you know, these historically very antagonistic ties that because of the rally around the flag effect and just the very public contribution by the Kadir regime through the initial troop commitment to the assault on Kiev, the creation and then continued existence of the Ahmad group, and just this continual propagandizing of the Kadirovtsi as this, you know, elite central unit, be it, you know, the capture of Mariupol, that would be the main one. But they've maintained this idea that they are, you know, the ones that need to go where it's hottest and play the biggest role, which is, you know, why they were the ones responding to Evgeny Prigozhin and Wagner's, you know, mutiny. And so at this point, they're able to sort of throw their weight about to secure these, you know, demonstrations of appreciation for their contributions, whether that's getting official acknowledgement of that in the Duma or all of the different awards that have been granted to uh, Ramzan's son, Adam, they're all sort of symptoms of the same phenomenon of just asserting the buildup of influence gathered by the wartime events. And just a quick question here. Do you think that there is, in the back of their mind, translating that influence to more sustainable power uh, when the inevitable transition happens in Russian politics, because some people have said Ramazan has ambitions to be president of all Russia. So it's definitely, you know, attempts to, there, there are attempts to diversify their economic, their financial assets, and especially pick up some new ones in occupied Ukraine. Those are not going to hold. So it's a, it's a wonder how, and really, realistically, even whether he actually views those as, as long-term uh, obviously, Kadyrov has also picked up some major assets in in the national economy in Russia, such as, you know, the Danon yogurt factory. He's definitely trying to, like, hedge his power. He's not trying to move up to the federal level. You just simply cannot 
move his apparatus, his whole you know regime apparatus, and move it up to the federal level. He doesn't have the men. He doesn't have the goodwill among officials, and it's just not going to happen. Ivan, uh, you had something you wanted to add? Yeah, just to really stress this, Harold already mentioned really all the key elements here, but I just really wanted to stress that indeed Kadyrov doesn't re- is not really a beloved figure in Moscow, uh, and by that I mean in the Kremlin and among the so-called Kremlin towers. Reportedly, um, I, I, I don't know how much it is true, but supposedly really his only ally in Moscow is really Putin himself. Uh, it's important to remember that Putin elevated Kadyrov's father, Ahmad Kadyrov, to be president of, of kind of this puppet regime in Chechnya. And, and of course, Ramsam Kadyrov rise uh, uh, to power. And I don't want to project some sort of uh, sentimental bond between the two men. I'm sure it's a, I'm confident it's a political relationship like, like they all are, but this is definitely a long-standing kind of partnership between the two. And I'm sure that, that, that there's no, no intention from Kadeyov's side to really change the way it is arranged at the present time. Yeah. And for those of you th- who've been listening to our podcast, you'll know that Russia typically functions on a uh, patronal political system where you have a patron such as Putin and he deliberately picks people who will be loyal to him, but will also work against one another, which is, as Harold mentioned, the uh, animosity between the Chechen and the federal services is well known and well pronounced and often breaks forth into very public displays of violence. But yeah, uh, Ivan, let's talk. We've kind of focused on Chechnya now, but can you kind of give us an idea about the role and the importance of the other regions in the South Caucasus, because you don't hear about these as much. And kind of give us an idea of how they are governed or how they are managed, because I'm sure most people are aware Chechnya is essentially a totalitarian police state. And is it the same in the other regions in the South Caucasus? Yes, certainly. I would say that the other regions are also totalitarian police state in as much Russia itself is a totalitarian police state. Let me mention just these republics, so-called republics, there are... Um, it's uh, Adigea to the most on the west, then Kabardino-Balkaria, Karakarachay-Cherkessia, Kabardino-Balkaria, North Ossetia-Lania, Ingushetia, Chechnya, and Dagestan. These are republics. Most of them are one could call majority minority. So these are mostly inhabited by people who are not ethnic Russians, not Ruski in the terminology. They're what would be called Rasiski, which there's no good translation uh, into English of this nuance. Unlike Chechnya, these regions are governed by the similar federal system of governance as the rest of the Russian Federation. Uh, In other words, the the people who are assigned by governors are assigned by Moscow, with some are are mostly parachuted uh, from other positions uh, under Moscow's sanction, if not outright uh, direction. And their task tends to be just to implement uh, federal policy. They're not given that much autonomy to to manage the affairs of, of their respective regions beyond what Moscow just expects them to do. That's not to say that they don't have a personal impact and they don't try to carry out these instructions in different ways. Just to give one prominent example, between the late 2000s to the early 2010s, Ingushetia was led by uh, Yunusbek Yevkurov, who has been recently back in the news as Deputy Minister of Defense, if I'm not mistaken. But he was briefly governor, or not briefly, actually for many years, governor of Ingushetia. And in that role, he his primary task was to stem the rise of violence connected to the Islamist insurgency, kind of extremist insurgency across the North Caucasus, that at the time, by the late 2000s, had moved decisively 
in terms of intensity from Chechnya to other regions, notably Dagestan, but also in Gushetia. As governor, he didn't. His mission was already set. He had to control the violence and uh, kind of had to do it according to certain parameters that the federal government expected. But he did innovate in some ways by opening a dialogue with Salafist communities, which up until then were marginalized and uh, discriminated and kind of targeted uh, in some ways, kind of being conflated with Wahhabism, which is a different current in Islamic thought and extremism altogether. So he opened the dialogue with this, with some of these communities, which uh, helped to reduce the instability that Ingushetia was facing, to put it uh, in kind of modest terms. So uh, this is all to say that these regions are, like I said, kind of a bit ironic at the start, these regions are not governed all that differently from Russia and from the rest of Russia. It's just that their circumstances, because of their demographic profile and because of their let's say, developmental needs in terms of economy and institutional development, uh, they are governed differently. But it's a it's a difference of a matter of degree rather than a difference in terms of, let's say, quality, like in the, che- the case of Chechnya, where it's a state within a state or any other way that you want to classify it. Yes, I had previously been told that the closest analogy to Chechnya was the Stasi regime in East Germany, where there is a kind of complete and constant police presence coming from the Kadyrov paramilitaries. On that vein, let's kind of discuss more broadly this Islamic insurgency. Now, obviously, this dates back to the 1990s, as you both mentioned, and it's been on again, off again. And uh, Putin has frequently cited it as, you know, one of the reasons why Russia is actually aligned with the U.S. war on terror. How much of a current threat is this Islamic insurgency and um, how much of it is a fiction used to continue to justify Russian oppression in the region? Uh, we'll start with Harold. So so the insurgency at this point is very much very low grade, especially considering how it used to be. I mean, we've seen a couple sort of upticks in when you look at the data over the past few years. And it was very, very low. It was virtually non-existent in 2022. And like there were only six casualties, six deaths from armed conflict in the North Caucasus during that time. You had two in Dagestan, two in Chechnya, and two in Kabarna, Bulgaria. And of that, I mean, the two in Kabarna, Bulgaria were not Islamist insurgents. They were, uh, they were partisans against the war that got into a shootout with the FSB. But then this past year, you know, you've gone from you've started to see that rebound out of the shifts in Russian domestic situation stemming from the war. This year we had or this past year in 2023, we had 14 deaths, 14 injuries, and almost all of them were in Ingushetia. Ingushetia just wildly won there with 20 casualties total. Chechnya had two and Dagestan had two. And so part of this is really that the internal situation inside Ingushetia has really shifted. And that's not the only answer here. There's but there's also a few cases of young men in small groups coming to Ingushetia. You know, they're Ingush natives. They are somewhere else for school, like Astrakhan, you know, in a not too far away region. And then they're radicalized. They return to Ingushetia to fight and eventually get into shootouts and die. But the real change in terms of Ingushetia's internal domestic situation was that the current governor basically went to war with one of the former alternative power holder, the uh, Batal Hajinsi Sufi Brotherhood, basically went to war with them and fully cleaned them out. Uh, And I mean, they've been tied to gun smuggling, narcotics trafficking, 
and even the assassination of the former head of Center for Countering Extremism in the Republic. And so it's been this long-time evolution of, of the understanding between the authorities and the Batal Hajinsi Brotherhood. And basically, they decided to finally break that covenant or the understanding that they had together. And just generally, we've seen, you know, back in 2022, the Ingushetti's male population largely just refused to acknowledge that mobilization happened. We've just seen generally Kalimatov, the governor, has just failed to really implement any federal policies to the point that year after year, everybody just, you know, those that watch the region basically are just waiting to hear about his forced retirement. But it just never comes. And so this has sort of, you know, affected how much of this stuff is lone wolf, how much of this is lone wolves, how much is there an operational environment for an actual more organized insurgency. And I would say that as far as things go, things would just have to break. There just have to be a snapping point uh, to trigger anything actual large scale. And for now, we're likely just to see sort of this continuous very low grade insurgency. It might start, it might, it will probably continue to pick up some, uh, especially as there have been a lot more guns and various other munitions available throughout the region as they're just not being checked. As you know, this whole area is reasonably, you know, very, very close to the war. And so that has provided a lot of unregistered weaponry to just sort of be throughout the entire North Caucasus. And so that's partially why we can see this uptick in 2023 in militant activity as well. But it's diff- it's still such a repressive area. You know, all of these checkpoints in between the regions that were in, that were you know established as part of a counterterrorism strategy, they're still in place. And so it's still not to an actual insurgency taking place. But so we'll likely continue to see sort of these low grade, you know, more lone wolf type actions. Ivan, do you have any thoughts, Tad? No, I, I think uh, Harold really gave a comprehensive uh, look at what's the current state. I would just emphasize the, that point that the, the, for the situation to change and to shift into a rise in uh, conflict intensity or a renewed push for some sort of insurgency, a lot of those organizations that actually led the violence uh, about 10 years ago from, from its peak, a lot of them ha- have been just uh, dismantled. Many of them went to Syria with uh, covert, if not assistance, at least uh, uh, encouragement uh, from the federal government as a way to defuse the the situation at home. So despite the fact that we are talking about a region that is heavily impoverished, highly repressed, and highly dependent on federal transfers with few local industries other than tourism and maybe a few other services, a little bit of industry and agriculture, it, it would be hard to see from where could a renewed push for kind of bottom-up contestation of the type we saw 10 years ago or 15 years ago. I think if we were to see uh, violence rise again, it would be, it would take a different shape and it would be led by different people, different ideas, uh, different forms of organization. There would, of course, be some continuity, but it wouldn't be just a a revival of what we saw in in the recent past. So actually, that was my next question. So as you've outlined, The region is very reliant on funding from the central government, and also there's a sort of constant maintenance of control through essentially what is a uh, occupation and and also the uh, regional administrators, but they're also reliant heavily on fund transfer from Moscow. Now, Harold, you mentioned mobilization, and this is something that 
I, I want to discuss with you both in the broader context of what's happening with the escalation of the war in Ukraine. The Russian central states obviously under a lot of pressure. There's less money to go around, fewer resources. Uh, there's a need for more manpower at the front lines. And what effect is this having on the Caucasus region? Has it, have we seen a diminishment in those funds transfer? And have there been efforts to mobilize the young men of the region? We obviously know the Kadyrovites have been volunteering, though my understanding is even with, as you mentioned earlier, Harold, even with the uh, accolades they've been receiving, they've mainly been tasked for re rear area security because they're not good for much else. So what is the effect the conflict in Ukraine or the escalated invasion of Ukraine having on the political dynamics of the region. Uh, Ivan, why don't we start with you? Well, uh, one of the main points that rose in the last almost two years now is that uh, some of the regions more most targeted for uh, mobilization and uh, quote-unquote volunteer recruitment are this minority-majority regions, such as regions in the North Caucasus, but also in uh, Siberia. One of them that uh, has stood out is Dagestan, which is one of the poorest regions of the Russian Federation, where the income with average salaries, I don't, I don't have the number in front of me, but it's about half of what the average person in Moscow would gain, or even less, plus uh, which a much higher uh, unemployment rate, which is even uh, harder. The region such as this, with such economic need, are, the military presents a viable career for uh, young people to manage the, the unemployment situation. And then, of course, uh, with very generous, or, or not, I don't know if generous is the right word, but uh, very substantial enlistment bonuses and promised salaries, many of which are never delivered, the launch of the full-scale invasion against Ukraine attracted some more people into the military, although I and kind of made Dagestan and other regions similar to it to, uh, overrepresented in the mobilization and in, in the previous uh, volunteer recruitment. That said, I, I would be very interested to see good quality opinion polls reflect that it, it would try to capture the general mood in, in these regions in the North Caucasus regarding the war, whether the trends of... Uh, Kind of a latent support, uh, if not open support, for the invasion are, that we see across the Federation are replicated there with the same intensity or or less so. So so that's kind of a, a an item that has been recurring: the, the overrepresentation of this uh, minority people of minority background in uh, uh, in in the invasion. And we can talk about other elements, but uh, maybe there are other aspects that, that can be also emphasized. And uh, Harold, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I completely. Uh, agree with Avon, you know, that is by far the main point that they've just been so overrepresented in terms of manpower contribution, both through mobilization, through other means of, you know, moving people to the front. And for that, you know, they're overrepresented in casualty rates and just generally overrepresented. I mean, they're just generally overrepresented in the military itself. I think one of the big things was just how much public sentiment was against the mobilization and that that provoked, you know, actual public protests for multiple days in Kabarna Balkaria. We had, you know, the English just sort of refused to mobilize, which they just sort of covered up instead. Uh, you know, Chechnya had an actual protest. Dagestan had, you know, days of very intense protests and the crowds clashing with police there. And I, I'm, I was looking back through videos from those days not that long ago, and it was still just so shocking how nobody got shot during the protests in Mahachkala in Dagestan. And so I think that's one of those things that sort of needs to just sort of be remembered is that there is still a point 
where people will mobilize against the state. The state is getting better at figuring out how to prevent that and how to counter it. But just like, you know, the anti-Semitic mob that attempted to storm, you know, the international airport in Dagestan just a matter of months ago, they're still struggling to deal with some of these spontaneous sort of acts of, you know, discontent or resistance. But I think it's one of those dynamics that definitely needs to be kept in mind, especially as the situation across all of Russia reasonably is getting worse. I mean, we, we've all seen the stories in the past few days uh, about all of like the heat and power outages around Russia. I mean, these are the types of problems that literally are occurring year round throughout Dagestan. And despite the fact that, you know, Sergei Melikov, the governor, recently promised to modernize the electricity grid, that's not going to happen. That's just not going to, and certainly not fast enough. And so, you know, you've had smaller actions and more more localized in communities that have, you know, they've been protesting on and off, basically, I mean, all of last year, fair amount of the year previous. I mean, this is no new thing, but as just as the situation, you know, as the economic situation continues to just deteriorate, the fact that there is indeed a breaking point and a point at which society will demonstrate that fact really just needs to be kept in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in its when it's in one of the most heavily repressed regions of Russia, yet we're still, as you say, seeing demonstrations. That is very interesting. W- one point, though, that you mentioned that since this is called Russia in context, the anti-Semitic mob storming the airport just a few months ago. Can you kind of explain to us what was the driving force behind that? I mean, obviously, Many people in the West still see this as a heavily Islamic region and think Russia's continued presence there is good because it keeps a lid on a new potential source of jihadist radicalism. What exactly was going on with that airport storming? Because that seems quite an extreme escalation for a region that's so heavily policed. Yeah, so basically what was happening was there were these rumors that, oh, there's a plane full of Israeli citizens that will, that will be landing and seeking asylum here in Dagestan. Dagestan, the general population, being very pro-Palestine and very much in the days leading up and the weeks leading up reasonably, you know, stru- not able to demonstrate their support for Palestine. Uh, and it was, you know, the government was not allowing for there to be any release of public sentiments. And so, especially like, I've seen the pictures, you know, I've been on the those, the, tele, the popular Telegram channels that were in part responsible for organizing some of, you know, the storming of the airport and just other, and other channels in this, of a similar flavor, you know, this sort of anti-government or more religious Islamist nature. And the pictures that are just that have been shared constantly i mean they are just positively horrific and so it's very easy to see how how this anger built up and you know you're not really being able to do so much as demonstrate a support for palestine and you know the ability to do anything a bit more substantial is you know i i'm not exactly sure to what degree they were able to and then you know you find out oh they're flying in israeli citizens and so basically they just snapped and decided to try to stop it. And this was, I mean, this was like an organ, was, the spreading of these rumors was basically an organized campaign because you have the similar rumors taking place in across the North Caucasus and like the Chechen authorities mobilized to prevent any organizing of a similar mob there. 
I'm pretty sure we even had that rumor in Ingushetia who doesn't even have a connecting flight to Israel. And so it's basically just playing off of the raw emotions surrounding the conflict and, you know, the extreme repressiveness in the region that doesn't really allow for any public demonstration of any kind. And so that and some other factors sort of all combine to lead us to the storming of the airport. That's very interesting. And Ivan, here's my question for you on that. So obviously the elite in this region are very much in the pocket of Moscow or in cahoots with them. Is there any kind of opposition or counter elite in exile or domestically that is agitating for separatism, for even just the region to be governed more democratically, or perhaps still opposition in uh, the Islamic sense? Yeah, certainly. Here, uh, uh, I will mostly talk about the regions other than Chechnya, because I think Harold might be uh, better suited than me to talk about the uh, Chechen government in exile or Chechen opposition in uh, abroad. When it comes to the kind of the external factor, let's say, it's it, it various and it's mostly connected by the bond of, let's say, ethnic solidarity between the large Circassian diaspora now, Circassians are uh, one of the groups native, let's say, or in the North Caucasus. They are native to the regions of Adygea, Kastanoakite uh, as well, the Black Sea coast more generally, but also Karabagino-Balkaria, where they're called uh, Kabards, and Kai-Cherkessia, where they are called the uh, Cherkes. But these are all names for the same group called Circassian. In the 19th century, the Circassians were massively expelled uh, by the Russian Empire, in an act uh, that many historians argue was one of the first kind of modern era genocides, they were killed or forcibly expelled from their uh, land uh, along the Black Sea coast, and they found, you know, the survivors found refuge in the Ottoman Empire. So there are Circassian settlements and uh, populations all kind of settled throughout the Ottoman Empire from Kosovo, from what is today a Kosovo, to throughout the Anatolian Peninsula and uh, beyond. These uh, Circassian diasporas have created organizations for uh, kind of, of solidarity with their with their homeland for decades. On the top of my head, I, I, I know that the end of the Soviet Union kind of was seen as a period where uh, these bonds would be rebuilt and there would be a new trans-border solidarity among uh, the diaspora and the homeland. However, this is a very diverse group. When it comes to their politics and their contemporary politics, they are very diverse. They are, their views on, on uh, Moscow, on the state of Russian politics, uh, vary widely between those who are more accommodationist to, to Moscow. Some would even accuse them of being co-opted by Moscow. There are some organizations that are indeed patronized by either the local governments in the North Caucasus, if not Moscow outright. And there are as well organizations and individuals, activists that denounce, for instance, the deterioration of, of the presence of the circassian language throughout the region, as well as other elements and kind of minority rights in the North Caucasus. So this is to say that uh, that, that element, that external element, has been there for, for many decades. And now with the war, the division is still there. Uh, we haven't seen really a coalition of circassian groups really for or against uh, Russia's aggression against Ukraine. 
But this is definitely a, a factor that can sometimes complicate uh, Russia's policy in the Caucasus, in the broader Caucasus region, but also Turkey and really anywhere with uh, circassian diaspora. So we can talk about also other diasporas, but the circassian one is the most notable one precisely because of its size. I don't remember the number on the top of my head, but it might very well be that there are more circassians or people of circassian background or that can trace some circassian heritage outside of historical circassia in what is today the Russian Federation, more abroad than uh, uh, in the homeland, I want to say. Really interesting. Thank you. And Harold, can you tell us some about the Chechen government in exile? So the Chechens in exile, there are a few different forums, I, I, I will say, for their organization. Basically, there are three former officials that from the Ichkarian, you know, independent Ichkaria era that all claim to be have the, you know, legal sort of right to inherit power. The main one is Ahmed Zakayev, you know, and his London-based uh, government in exile. Uh, he's been very public in his role in Ukraine and organizing uh, fighters there and generally doing pretty substantial international outreach for the Chechen cause, both with respect to getting, you know, Chechnya recognized as occupied, get, uh, recognition of the multiple genocides of the Chechens committed by Russia. So you have that faction, you have some younger, more independent factions that are just more out of sort of this blogger activist grouping of Chechen political actors. And you just generally have a very a sizable, you know, fighter contingency in Ukraine. It's, you know, spread out across a variety of different units. And so it's a rather politically diverse group, but definitely one that is united by the sort of bottom line objective of freeing Chechnya. Wow. So a very dynamic and interesting region. And this only entails the part of the Caucasus that is officially within Russia's territory. So we are just about out of time, but thank you both very much for attending and looking forward to following up with both of you as we can discuss Russia's policy in its near abroad in the broader Caucasus region. Uh, thank you, everyone who tuned in. This has been Russia in Context with Jeff Hahn.